Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Karenkov. I am just about done with my PhD at Stanford studying AI, and I'm now working at an AI startup. By the way, what do you have to do before you're like, your intro sounds like I am now done with my PhD at Stanford? Like, is that just a defense? I still need to submit my dissertation. So I did the defense, but uh, I need to polish polish up my dissertation and submit it uh. so everything is officially done. Okay, okay. I was just wondering, because every time I hear that, I'm like, when, when is that going to happen for him? I don't know. But I okay. know, I know. Nice. Almost. Sorry, One that, month. That, that's, a, that's a jerk thing to say too, right? I mean, like, like hey, when no, are you No, no, it's a reasonable question. Like, question. <laughs> why am I not done if I'm already working at a startup, you know? Yeah. Come on, Andre. Um, cool. Yeah. No, anyway, thanks for the, the, the deets. Hey, everyone. I'm, I'm Jeremy. And in case you hadn't noticed, my, my voice is uh, the, the voice of the other podcast host here. So I work for a company called Gladstone AI that I co-founded. It's all about AI safety. I have a book. It's called Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. Available at fine bookstores everywhere. Uh, cool. What do we have this week, Andre? Oh, we have, as usual, quite a bit. So we uh, are going to start structuring things a little bit differently. We've been kind of informally mentioning reviews and comments in the last couple of weeks. And now we've realized, you know, we might as well just make a whole section at the beginning before we get to the news, just responding to a couple of comments or corrections. And then we also are adding a listener question segment at the end. So every week we're going to pick out one topic or question that was sent in and spend maybe 10, 15 minutes addressing it and discussing it. So yeah, hopefully that's going to be a lot of fun. And also new, we are now selling out. (laughs) We're going to have a little ad, but uh, I think this one is actually a very good fit. So we're not, you know, selling vitamins or something. So let's go ahead and get that done with. Uh, The ad is for the No Priors podcast. So this is a podcast with interviews of people in AI. It's co-hosted by Elad Gill and Sarah Guo, who have a lot of background in industry and venture capital. And they talk to leading AI researchers and founders and ask questions like how far away is AGI, what markets are at risk for disruption, all this sort of stuff and no priors is out now they have maybe i think a a bunch of episodes with very cool people that are interviewed so if you want to hear people in ai uh that might be a good option by the way i love that we're at the point in the timeline where like the everyday podcast like yeah how far do you think uh, agi is and like which (laughs) entire market segments are going to get nuked like that's i guess where we are today so Fun fact, by the way, so any money we earned uh, for last week in AI from the Substack and, and this current ad, most of it that we spend goes to subscribing to uh, magazines and publishing, so New York Times or The Atlantic. Like, to actually not get paywalled, we subscribe to like tens of these. So you're, if you're giving us money, you're helping journalists, I guess. Also, we're, we're both sporting an awful lot of bling right now just like just gratuitous amounts of bling oh yeah we're making so much money you know we don't even need day jobs (laughs) anymore (laughs) 
but also, since we have this little ad for no priors, we might as well mention a couple other podcasts we like that include interviews with AI researchers. So I'll list a few. First is the Gradient podcast. I've actually uh, started that one a while back, I think maybe two years ago, and did a bunch of interviews with a lot of AI researchers. We dive kind of deeply into the technical side of things. And now it's hosted by someone else, but still really good variety of people. Similarly, Robot Brains, uh, hosted by, oh, what's his name? Peter Abiel. Peter Abiel is yeah, a professor yeah, yeah. at Berkeley who is very, very influential and very prolific. And he talks to a lot of AI researchers and some people in industry uh, also. Uh, so yeah, I think those two are pretty cool resources if you want to hear from people working in AI right now, in addition to no priors. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, with, with our selling out now complete... With our, with our bling well-earned and our magazine subscriptions paid for. Uh, what does this week look like, Andre? Like, is this, is this another giant smorgasbord of like world-changing things or, or what's the shape? It's actually a little less world-changing this week, I think. It's going to be a little less open-source focused compared to last week. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll get to it in just a sec. But first, we also want to address these listener comments. Uh, we have oh, a couple. Yes. So uh, on Apple Podcast, uh, Cool Dad <laughs> uh, had a nice review and mentioned, Jeremy, that we could upgrade our audio situation uh, a bit, which we actually apparently have just done, right? Yes. Yes. Thank you, Cool Dad. So hopefully you're hearing me louder and clearer this time. I checked the call settings on this thing. Apparently my default microphone rather than my beautiful Scarlet Solo professional studio, whatever mic was, was activated. So hopefully this is better. And yeah, we're doing what we can to put a smile on your faces. Much better. We also have a review from meme.addict, another pretty great username, uh, suggesting we use the term interesting less. Probably that's me. I like interesting. using interesting a lot. <laughs> but yeah, I should try and uh, switch up my terminology a little bit. And I also I'm very that guilty was, of that too. Yeah, uh, there was also a comment on it being very difficult to add this review, and it is very annoying to review on Apple Podcast. So officially, if you want to give us a comment or a correction or a question, you can email contact at lastweekin.ai, or you can comment on our Substack in lastweekin.ai or YouTube. So those are probably easier ways than leaving uh, reviews. Or we do like nice reviews as well. And one more, we will mention uh, a review from Robo0890. Uh, cool to hear, this is a high school student who is hoping to one day major in AI. And uh, they asked if we could talk about AI as a career and what they should shoot for in college and beyond. So that's actually going to be our listener question for this week. And we're going to address it after we talk about all the news. Alrighty, and just to give a high-level overview, and we're going to jump in, this week is going to be pretty business-heavy, uh, lots of stories about companies, pretty dramatic story from Google with a leaked memo, supposedly. We also have a pretty large amount of research and policy and safety, and uh, also... Uh, 
even more stuff on music in the art uh, section. So that's really been a big topic. All right. So kicking things off with tools and apps, we have Microsoft 365's AI-powered Copilot is getting more features and paid access. This is a really kind of shockingly general purpose tool that Microsoft is developing and now starting to release incrementally. So essentially, this is like a thing that is a co-pilot, not in the like GitHub code assistant sense, because um, that that tool is called Copilot as well. But this is Microsoft Copilot, and it's like a copilot for like all your Microsoft apps. So like, you know, think PowerPoint, think uh, Microsoft Designer, think uh, Word, all that good stuff. Basically, you can go in and be like, yo, Copilot, um, I want you to like generate a March sales report. And the tool will be like, oh, okay, I know that sales reports are produced by Kelly on the finance team and created in Excel and kind of like hook you up with that, basically. So this is a really, I mean, this is, I don't want to call it like intrusive, but it, it's it's very kind of general purpose, useful AI seeping into every kind of crevice of the day-to-day with uh, with Microsoft products. And yeah, pretty a pretty big change, at least for those of us who are dinosaurs and grew up with like the old Microsoft Word where it was just humans typing stuff, uh, a pretty big shift. Definitely, yeah. And I think this uh, approach from Microsoft is pretty smart where it's kind of a branding thing almost where we have GitHub Copilot, now you have Microsoft 365 Copilot. And yeah, it's all Copilots. They all kind of integrate with little assistant features. So for example, uh, we've talked about Microsoft Designer last week where it helps you design uh, various things like Instagram posts. You can generate images in PowerPoint or flash out bullet points into whole paragraphs. Of course, in Word, you can auto-generate sentence completions and things like that. In Excel, I'm sure you can ask a natural language to do some stuff and it will figure out all the equations and so on to do that sort of thing. So there's a lot of pretty low-hanging fruit in all these products for what you can do. And I think probably they're going to be mostly free or maybe there's going to be a subscription to get access to these features. That'll be interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm super curious about just the hallucination aspect of this. Like, you know, you think about like what this means to be like, yo, uh, co-pilot, make me like the finance doc. Sorry, I'm not a finance person, obviously. Make me the finance doc for the month. And uh, if this thing hallucinates, if it goes like, oh yeah, your revenues were this, you know, and it makes up numbers. If you have inaccuracies at that level, um, you know, this could potentially be fairly, <laughs> fairly dangerous. So, you know, high level of reliability is going to be required in these tools to, to use them for realsies. Obviously, human reviews going to be an important thing to do, but, uh, but kind of cool as we start to take our hands off the wheel here more and more with these systems, you know, where are we going to see them break? Where are we going to see hallucination be an issue and so on? Yeah, yeah. We just chatted about from a UI perspective last week, how it's not obvious necessarily how in, it is how we should integrate AI features into these existing already powerful tools. And this will be not interesting. It'll be cool to see what Microsoft does uh, with these uh, co-pilots. So yeah, interesting. Not interesting. <laughs> not, not interesting. <laughs> not interesting. All right. Uh, next up, we have Informatica goes all in on generative AI with Claire GPT. So actually, 
quite a similar story in a way. This Informatica is a provider of end-to-end data management solutions, so things like Excel, but also consuming, processing, managing, and analyzing data. And they're now planning to add this Claire GPT thing that is going to provide this natural language interface to do things like data discovery, data pipeline creation, metadata exploration, data quality and relationship exploration, all the stuff that you do with data as a big company, I assume. So yeah, another tool for businesses in this case. Yeah, and, and to the comment that we got from Robo0890, that's so catchy, uh, about uh, AI careers, right? We're talking. They, they mentioned here they're looking at realizing an up to 80% reduction in time spent on key data management tasks. So you think about the redefinition of what it means to be like a data engineer or a data clean cleaning person, um, you know, th- this is this is changing the landscape of what's going to be expected and, and probably moving people more towards like strategic functions in this space. But anyway, it's going to be really interesting to see what effects that has on the workforce, like how are jobs redefined? Because, you know, data engineer is not going to mean the same thing at, at many of these companies than it may have in the past. Also, another thing to note from this article uh, that I think is worth mentioning, uh, like you mentioned, reliability and hallucination is very important to avoid with data that you're presumably using for some important stuff. So they go a little bit into how this is leveraging a multi-LLM architecture, multiple large language models, where they use some public language models uh, for things like ChatGPT, intent classification, but also fine-tuned Informatica-hosted language models that generate data management artifacts. And the claim here is ChatGPT might be able to design a script and a data pipeline, and it will, but it might not work because of this stuff of hallucination and lack of governance. So if you want to talk about a moat and you know, uh, what is different here from just ChatGPT, I think in a specific niche, you actually do need to integrate it in some slightly more nuanced ways. Yeah, and, and the multi-LLM thing, kind of self-correcting architectures, that sort of thing. I think that we're seeing a lot more products like that where you know these these language models have reached this critical threshold where they're actually able to offer input in a sense into each other's uh, each other's faults. So anyway, kind of cool to see that um, getting productized. If in fact that is what's going on here, I, I think that's what they're gesturing at when they say um, the the multi-LLM strategy. Is it was that your read? I think it's more like for specific functionalities and features, you will have multi-LLMs. So for some things like just asking questions uh, or oh, I see. figuring okay. out what you want to do, that's something like ChatGPT versus something that requires a very, very robust uh, execution, like creating scripts for data pipelining, actual code, that might be right. actually created by Informatica and be more uh, robust. Okay, so they're like probably doing this with some kind of query routing model that like takes the initial user query and then goes like, like farms it out to a task specific model. That's the idea? That's my impression, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. All righty, next up, uh, maybe a less impactful story. We have LinkedIn's new AI will write messages to hiring managers. So pretty much... You know what you can imagine from a story, if you want to message a hiring manager on LinkedIn, by the way, owned by Microsoft, 
VAI will do it for you. It'll write a little like mini cover letter. It might include a few things from your profile as far as your experience. And you can avoid writing these initial like reaching out messages. Yeah, I think this is actually like portending another really major shift in just the way everyday business is run. Like, so uh, sort of brief aside, I, I used to run a company whose whole thing was helping people get hired in data science. And so we talked a lot about outreach on LinkedIn and how much of a differentiator good writing is. And so here, when you start to automate that and you have like these really high quality messages, and that's that's what at least we're seeing here in this screenshot that, uh, that we're looking at, like... You know, th this is no longer as much of a differentiator, and that used to be a kind of proof of work that you would do as a job seeker to show, hey, like I bothered to write a personalized message for you, and that would make you stand out. Once that stuff washes out, it's possible. Uh, like one direction this could go is like the value of LinkedIn as an outreach channel for people who are looking for work starts to drop as hiring managers just get spammed to blazes. So uh, I, I don't know that that's how that's going to work out, but it's, it's definitely one possibility that's raised by this uh, this thing. Yeah, and I imagine or I wonder if from a recruiter side. If you're getting messaged, do they get told by LinkedIn that this was AI generated or do they Ooh. kind of can't know? That's an interesting question. And you can get this by paying for LinkedIn premium. So I don't know that too many people have access <laughs> to this right now. But uh, yeah, it's kind of, a, again, with Microsoft really moving fast to do all sorts of things with language models. I like that dig at LinkedIn Premium too. Always nice to get one of those in. Yeah, I, I don't imagine many listeners use that, but maybe I'm wrong. Then we move on to another story that doesn't involve language models, amazingly. We have Waymo One doubles service area in Phoenix and continues growing in San Francisco. So the story is, you know, you can get it from the headline. Waymo now covers a lot of uh, Phoenix where they've actually launched and anyone can use a service through an app to get basically a Lyft or Uber type thing, but with an autonomous car, they've been testing in kind of localized regions that are maybe easier. And now you can see the area almost doubled and um, they serve a lot of rides. I think they mentioned here maybe thousands of riders per day. And similarly, in San Francisco, they are still expanding. They're more of a limited access. You have to apply to a wait list, but they are also pushing the ability to request rides there. You can already request rides 24-7. Uh, yeah, I'm really impressed by Waymo and their progress. And I think you know we are almost there with self-driving cars if they keep pushing it like this. Yeah, I just, all I know, and I, I like, I really should know more about this, like which self-driving car companies are actually legitimately, truly on the road today with fully autonomous, like self-driving cars. Uh, I know Waymo is like, su you know, super committed to this. They're even making cars with like no steering wheel and the whole shebang. But like, yeah, anyway, um, it, it's, it's kind of, I was surprised to see that they were actually straight up doing it uh, in two different cities and expanding in, in such a in such a not aggressive way, but such a quick way. I'm kind of curious too, as we start to see these expansions happening in more and more unusual cities, cities that look less and less like San Francisco, like how much are we going to start to see these like out of distribution errors popping up where you see robustness failures? You know, like for example, the 
you know, car AI mistaking a snowbank for the sky or something, which was known to happen previously. Like, you know, how how are these the kinds of errors that we're going to see going to shift? Um, I think that's going to be an interesting dimension to look out for, especially as the playbook evolves for launching in new cities. Um, there's a lot here to learn about AI safety, and I think we're going to learn a lot about the safety and robustness of these systems going forward. Definitely, yeah. Waymo One launched to the public back in 2020, actually, and they have since expanded to roughly four times the size of the initial service area. So I think that was their really pilot sort of city where they really kind of tried to figure out how you scale, how do you adapt to a new city. And I would say, as far as I know, in the U.S., only Waymo and Cruise are actually running fully autonomous cars that oh, anyone yeah. can use. And Waymo, to me, appears to be the leader in terms of the performance or reliability. They say that they are basically waiting for their final permit to offer paid rides in San Francisco. Wow. So, yeah, I think they are, you know, finally self-driving cars are... Almost here, I think. In hopefully within a year or two, they'll be in you know major multiple cities, including LA, maybe even New York. I could see that happening, honestly, with Amo. And up next is applications in business. This is a a big article that's been doing the rounds. This supposedly leaked Google memo from a Google insider, and it's called "We Have No Moat, and Neither Does OpenAI." Now, if you been listening to the podcast for a while, you know we've talked about moats a lot when it comes to scaled language models, scaled multimodal models. You know, the question being like, can big companies continue to make cutting edge proprietary models that cost hundreds of million dollars millions of dollars to create and get value from those models? You know, the the risk is increasingly we're seeing things proliferate into the open source. Open source models are just getting so good, partly because once someone invests a ton of money into building a super powerful AI like GPT-4, you can take a much smaller model and like fine tune it on outputs that you collect from the bigger model, from GPT-4. So you can like get GPT-4 to basically, basically create a custom training set for your smaller model and then match the performance pretty closely of GPT-4 or similar models uh, with, with some custom fine tuning, at least on specific tasks. Um, so this is basically the premise here. This uh, author is saying like, look, in the wake of the leak of this highly scaled model from Meta that's called Llama that we've covered before, uh, we have essentially a stable diffusion moment for large language models. And you know, stable diffusion is the open source alternative to DALI 2, and you don't tend to see people using DALI 2 uh, quite so much these days. It's mid-journey and, and, and stability AI are the two kind of front runners, or so it seems. And so, um, yeah, anyway, it kind of makes this argument that essentially there's all kinds of advantages, compounding advantages to open source. You can stack different fine tunings. So you can like fine tune your model for a conversational uh, dialogue. And then you can also fine tune it for instruction following. And that kind of stacks together nicely. So you have a model that can sort of do both at the same time. And that allows people to experiment very quickly in the open source, which makes it more difficult for like larger centralized companies to compete. Um, a whole bunch of interesting arguments that we'll, we'll unpack here. But uh, Andre, I just want to pivot to you here. Like, What, what were your thoughts when you, uh, when you first read this? Yeah, I think this is definitely onto something. And I think we've already discussed it last week. We even mentioned, I think, this being kind of a sta stable diffusion moment. 
in the same vein, you get one powerful model. And from there, open source just goes crazy, develops a ton of tools, quickly iterates and improves upon it. And we've seen that in the past few weeks. So this memo really speaks to that. I don't know if I fully agree that there's no moat. Uh, There's, especially for OpenAI, GPT-4 appears to have a lot of tricks that they do that make it high quality, but also qualitatively different. Very large input window sizes, context sizes, and the speed is blazing fast and even faster of Claude, where if you use one of these open source models, they are actually slower, even if they're uh, smaller. So there are advantages that you have with OpenAI and these big companies. On the other hand, I also think that for many things, you don't need a super good model. You may not need a GPT-4 or a GPT-3, depending on the use case. And in many cases, I can imagine you need kind of a, a simpler model that is good for a single task. You begin with a general purpose language model, a chatbot, and you make it uh, you know, specific to what you need, maybe like customer support or question answering about your particular app, et cetera. And for those things, I think this memo is spot on. It, it totally is, right? Like like last last week we had not an entire episode on open source, but it was just like every other story. Um, I, I will say, you know, in agreement with what you just said, I mean, there are parts of this article that, uh, sorry, this post that seem somewhat overstated. So one in particular, you know, the author makes the claim that open source has like solved the scaling problem to the extent that anyone can tinker. And like, okay, but that's not the scaling problem. Right, like basically, if you want to make the most cutting edge AI models in the world, yes, there's just no other way besides pre-training with a disgusting amount of data and processing power. So that that is still going to be the case. Um, the open source models that we're seeing proliferate now, a lot of them follow that process that we just talked about of like you know fine tuning a model on like data custom generated by you know GPT four or Chat GPT. And that leads to models that can do specific tasks really well, but they they can't you know smash the performance of GPT four across a wide range of tasks typically. So usually what you find is people will say, oh, I matched GPT four in this like fairly narrow subset, this uh, like subdomain, and then they'll say, okay, so so therefore my system is GPT four level capability or whatever. And that yeah, we've seen that claim a couple times. I don't think we've explicitly flagged it when it's come up. Maybe we should have, but like. That I think is part of you know part of being a little bit more realistic about what can and can't be done today in open source. Not that these aren't very impressive and important capabilities, but you know it's not like GPT four is at risk of being fully open sourced quite yet. Exactly, and I think the other thing worth noting is data, right? Where right. so far, yes, there are open data sets that can be used to train, but we've also been discussing how Reddit and Stack Overflow and other services that provide a lot of this data will probably start gatekeeping and you have to pay large amounts of money to get access to their data. So to really, for many commercial applications, I think remote will be just being able to have the data necessary and to specialize your model to whatever the context is. So Google, OpenAI, maybe they have no moat in the sense that they can't provide the best general purpose thing that hits everyone's needs, but individual companies and 
players in industry will have different types of modes depending on their niche. And our next story here is, sorry, I have to do it this way. I just can't resist. Um, AI will create a serious number of losers, DeepMind co-founder warns. Um, so basically, it's just this. So, so, so it looks like from the title, it looks like this is going to be an article about just like, uh, I don't know, the winners and losers in the space or maybe job loss. It's actually sort of just a more general insider perspective on the whole AI landscape. And it's it's an interview with Mustafa Suleiman, who is one of the founders of Inflection AI and who's formerly of DeepMind. And he's talking about all kinds of things, including universal basic income, kind of flagging that this is something he thinks is going to be necessary. Um, he also provides some you know, little interesting insider accounts of what it was like from you know the view from within Google uh, when ChatGPT was launched, and he's kind of like, you know, look with with Lambda, as he says, we had ChatGPT a year and a half before ChatGPT, so Google was sitting on Lambda and hadn't launched it, and then out comes ChatGPT, uh, basically because OpenAI is a very kind of kind of very big on on move fast and break things like launch, 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 and uh, this is part of the race to the bottom dynamic that we've flagged before on the podcast, like you know. OpenAI just decides to go ahead and launch this uh, this chatbot when potentially there were malicious use issues, there were there were all kinds of, of accident risks, that sort of thing. Um, and Google is sitting there, kind of patiently tinkering uh, with with Lambda, trying to make it safe and so on. Um, always unclear what the right call is in these situations, but it's it's a, an, imp- an important and interesting, dare I say, dimension of of this whole uh, issue. I think I would actually disagree a bit on that story framing. OpenAI was not that fast to break things. They had the GPT-3 playground for a while that was used by a much smaller number of people with basically the same freedom of ChatGPT. And there was, they published the paper on reinforcement learning from human feedback back in March of 2023 and ChatGPT came out all the way after that in November. So I think they did spend a decent amount of time working on ChatGPT before release. And that was part of why it exploded. It was just good. It was reliable and it was performant. And Google had Lambda. They had a chatbot that was qualitatively similar. Then I think Blake Lemoyne having his whole sentient AI story yeah. really pushed them back into kind of going to hiding. And that might have been a real game changer. Uh, but yeah, this is a pretty good take from a very influential person, a DeepMind co-founder, right? DeepMind being a very yeah. influential firm doing a ton of publication and research. So it's probably worth reading if you are curious for these sorts of perspective. Yeah, and, and good flag, by the way, on the chat GPT um, uh, fact check on me there. I think what I was thinking of in terms of quick releases, you know, when, when they released chat GPT with API, oh, sorry, yeah, the chat GPT API with tool use, I think that was one of those things where people said, whoa, whoa, whoa like, hold on a minute, all of a sudden, we're now going to be able to like couple this to all kinds of things. Um, but you're right, the actual like OpenAI with GPT-4 as well, we've seen them, you know, take months and months uh, before releasing something into the wild. So definitely uh, shouldn't mean to imply that they're rushing to it. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, race to the bottom is a thing, perhaps not in this particular issue. 
And I think especially now with ChatGPT having exploded, because they, we, we often say this, OpenAI did not expect ChatGPT to be yeah. as big as it was. And I think a lot of us in AI kind of knew about language models and knew that they could do a ton of stuff that was really interesting. And it was just a matter of, I guess, getting to a point where VUI and services were there for anyone to try it. Next up, we have IBM takes another shot at Watson as AI boom picks up Steam. So many of you may remember that IBM had this whole Watson thing of AI for maybe about a decade where it was basically a suite of tools that offered different AI-powered things that kind of crashed and burned. It wasn't really good i've i've heard some horror stories where yep. it was basically underdeveloped and not very good and it was kind of like a consulting thing more than anything ibm sold its uh watson health unit but now you know they're doing watson x which will be totally different maybe and this is a development studio for companies to train tune and deploy machine learning models so actually Totally different from what Watson was. Yeah. I guess they just want to keep a brand alive. And they'll include things like uh, AI generated code, AI governance toolkit, and a library of thousands of large scale AI models trained on language, geospatial data, code, and other things. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like a pretty big philosophical pivot from IB, IBM's kind of slowly dying consulting business model. Um, kind of cool to see them go more product centric. And I think it makes sense. They are partnering with Hugging Face to do this, um, which is which is kind of cool. Um, and, and as well, like kind of probably a, a big win for Hugging Face too, in terms of distribution. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I th I think this makes sense. It's so hard to know. IBM is like such a difficult company to to assess because they do have that reach, even though they're they're kind of like old school, um, you know, in terms of their uh, a lot of their their models and practices. Uh, that distribution, like you know, you should not underestimate it. We saw Microsoft Teams like just absolutely kick Slack's ass when it it first launched for distribution reasons as well. So you know, who knows? Maybe maybe just coupling it to a platform like this. You know, breathes new life into the whole uh, the whole business. Yeah, and we've been discussing a lot of these B two C things, so businesses that aim at consumers with things like Microsoft three sixty five or uh, you know various tools you can use for your own purposes. But this is more B two B targeting enterprise customers. That's where you can make a lot of money, and that's where IBM is more experienced. Another story related to this, uh, also about IBM, came out. It's IBM to pause hiring for jobs that AI could do. So the CEO of IBM actually said this recently, that they will pause hiring for roles that could be replaced to AI. And that could be 30% of their global workforce that is non-customer facing. So that's about 26,000 jobs they might pause hiring on, which is a pretty dramatic statement to make. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you think back to uh, maybe last episode or the episode before when we were talking about one of these uh, generic gardener type reports where people were like, AI will create, you know, 7% increase in GDP over the next however many years. Um, you know, when you look at like a company, if, if assuming this isn't completely off base, the 30% figure in practice, like, 
this is pretty significant uh, in, in terms of the efficiency gains and the GDP implications. So I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to chalk this one up as another data point in favor of uh, our, our shared thesis from a couple episodes ago that the changes, they might be a fair bit bigger than, uh, than yeah, the consultants at Gardner or whatever might, might think. Well, I will say I think it's a little more complicated. GDP is gross domestic product. So the question is, are we going to see a lot of jobs be augmented and basically disappear and replaced with AI, in which case the total output stays the same, it just have fewer people doing it? Or do we see a lot more be created and sold and so on because we have AI and we can do more? That's kind of a balance that is not too clear right now. I, I'm sort of more seeing it as like we have now reached a threshold of AI capability where this much value can be unlocked in automated form. So, you know, once you can do that in one domain, I suspect that like a much broader industry transformation is afoot. Um, obviously, no way to know. And, and these numbers too, like they, this, these numbers tend to not pan out, you know, big numbers like 30%, probably, you know, that, that target, you know, may not materialize. But just to be at the stage where we're contemplating that being an option, um, you know, feels like it might be indicative of something. Definitely. And onto a quite different sector, we have a story, Peter Thiel's Palantir is seeing unprecedented demand for its military AI that its CEO calls a weapon that will allow you to win. So pretty dramatic story. Uh, the shares of Palantir were as up as much as 21% when they previewed the artificial intelligence platform, a tool that can be used by militaries to use ChatGPT type tools for battlefield intelligence and decision making. There was a demo video where they showed that you can do a lot of things like monitoring activity, receiving alerts, and then asking a chatbot for more details and asking the AI to guess what the information may mean. And so on. You can pretty much use a chatbot to analyze the data and then make decisions and send out data, send out commands essentially to military uh, divisions. So, yeah, this is a, it's a pretty big tool. Yeah, and and what a challenge too for test and evaluation, right? I mean, this is a, a high stakes application of AI. You know, the U.S. DoD has a, a famous directive three thousand dot zero eight that uh, anyways that's more about automated weapon systems. But they've got a, a culture and tradition of you know test and evaluation with AI systems, and generally like eagerness to adopt, but skepticism about adopting them quickly. And so they're going to have their hands full. I mean, it's, it, I'm guessing that they have already explored this tool a lot for this to be happening. Um, but I'd be really curious, like, how is this thing tested? Like, how can you get assurances that the, the battlefield decision making that you're going to be doing with this tool is actually going to be safe and reliable and robust and transparent and all those good things? Because um, this is a very significant thing to be doing, uh, automating a lot of uh, a lot of battlefield activities. Definitely, and related to that, there was a second story from Vice. I think is worth reading that covers a bit more detail on the demo. It's titled "Palantir Demos AI to Fight Wars," but says it will be totally ethical. Don't worry about it. Uh, so it walks through the demo, includes a video in there, which really showcases what it is. 
And it includes all these steps of essentially seeing a scenario, getting information, telling the AI to get better photos, and it launches a drone to take photos, asking what to do about the tank that the drone has seen, and then the AIP, the AI generates three possible courses of action, and then you can send that off a chain of command. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of just streamlining what probably people would be doing anyway in this military yeah. process is just making it much quicker and in, including things like ChatGPT for clarifying information. And so because it's all human in the loop, it might be a little less scary when than if AI were just making autonomous decisions and you know, controlling army resources. But still, you can imagine it making mistakes and misclassifying things and maybe suggesting the wrong course of action and that resulting in some truly catastrophic uh, outcomes. Yeah, which is which is where it's so interesting, you know, where specifically the human shows up in the loop. Like they, they've got humans making the decision, okay, to send the drones, choosing between different different strategies, things like things like that. So yeah, you know, what what are the consistent choke points where human interjection is going to be maintained? I think that's a, a really interesting question of establishing not just norms for the US military, but international norms around where human intervention is maintained in this whole structure. Um, so anyway, I, I think these are really important precedent setting activities, and it's a space to follow for sure. Mm-hmm. Next up, we have Chegg CEO calls 48% stock plunge over chat GPT fears, quotes, extraordinarily overblown. And so this follows a story that I think we covered, I can't remember if it was last we, week. We mentioned it last week. We didn't cover it. Oh, we it, mentioned yeah. it. Okay, that's what, okay. I think I read it and I was going to cover it, but then we, yeah. So yeah, essentially, you know, the Chegg came out, Chegg is this big ed tech company and they came out and said, look, uh, we're uh, we're getting our, our clocks cleaned here by ChatGPT, presumably, you know, students using ChatGPT maybe rather than Chegg products, that sort of thing. And as a result, Chegg's market share just plunged, sorry, not their market share, their market cap plunged, uh, 48% stock price decrease uh, on Tuesday, which was... Uh, now the CEO Dan Rosen Rosenweg is coming out and saying this is like totally overblown, um, and then the shares went back up by eight percent. So a lot of good, a lot of good that that must do. We're we're now uh, back up to just forty percent down on net. But uh, yeah, I think just a, another indication of how dramatic um, you know the impact of Chat GPT even now is. Uh, and and Chegg is trying to get ahead of this, you know, launching their own GPT four powered AI platform called Chegmate. Uh, so I guess you know if you, if you can't beat him, join him type thing. Um, but really interesting to see this. I think we're going to see a lot of companies. You know, I don't know if you could call it a flail, but it's certainly a lot, you know, reassessing their strategic outlook and and trying to be as AI savvy as they possibly can in light of all the capabilities coming on the market. It seems like all at once. Definitely. And actually, in case it's not clear, Chegg, their whole business is helping students prepare for exams and do homework. So that's why there's all of this uh, kind of concern that you can prepare your homework and study of ChatGPT, and it's quite good. Chegg's whole argument is, well, yes, but you may not always rely on ChatGPT being correct. It makes things up sometimes. So hopefully its own GPT-4, Chegmate, can then be fine-tuned and more specialized in having accurate answers. Uh, may or may not be 
a true hypothesis. I'm pretty skeptical, and it seems like the stock price really reflects that. Back to Microsoft. Another story is Microsoft working with AMD on expansion into processors. Last week, we talked about how Microsoft is working on the Athena chip to try and have its own chip to compete or just not rely on NVIDIA. And this week, we are hearing that they are working with AMD, a competitor to NVIDIA, to work on another chip. Basically, it's a multi-pronged strategy to uh, develop different uh, options. So the shares of AMD jumped by more than 6.5%. Microsoft jumped 1%. NVIDIA stock declined by 2%. Uh, so yeah, kind of a big deal. Yeah, also kind of an interesting indication of the, the zero-sum nature of the competition here that some people are seeing between um, presumably this Microsoft AMD collab and then like NVIDIA. Uh, so interesting to see the anti-correlation of those stocks. Um, one of the interesting things too noted here is that Microsoft has actually spent about $2 billion on its chip efforts, which sounds like a lot of money. Um, but then, and again, I don't remember if this was last episode that I mentioned this, but uh, apparently Facebook in their latest earnings call like spent $30 billion, $30 billion roughly training their AI models. So when you think about like just the scale of money that's being invested in trading budgets, a two billion dollar budget for um, for chip efforts, like it's it's big, but um, uh, but you know certainly within reason. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that relatively small number to reflect that this has been a growing project within uh, Microsoft. So they have been growing the silicon division under uh, former Intel executive Ronnie Borkar, and that group now has a staff of almost a thousand employees. So they are, I think, have spent two billion so far, but that number is gonna be way bigger this year, and they are gonna invest way more, uh, it seems. That, that's one of the things eh, with, with like hardware, it's actually really hard to spend a lot of money on like on hardware development. Like it doesn't scale super fast. And you kind of got to do this in a very layered way, both for talent and, and actual hardware purposes. So yeah, no, kind of kind of cool to, to see the, the effort grow. Next story, generative AI startup Runway just raised $100 million at a $1.5 billion valuation from a cloud service provider. So we've mentioned Runway a couple of times before. They do AI for video editing, broadly speaking, and they raised a new funding round of at least $100 million that triples the startup's valuation to $1.5 billion. Apparently, this is... From a cloud service provider, the article did not mention which one, but that could be AWS, that could be Google Cloud. And this is kind of uh, unusual. Usually you would get money from a venture capital firm, but in this case, it's from a cloud provider, which makes a lot of sense for an AI company specifically because they might be using that cloud compute. Yeah, and it's really consistent, right, with the broader trends that we've seen. Like, it kind of seems like these so you've got the cloud providers and then you've got the model developers. And there's sort of like this natural symbiosis that's been happening lately between those two, where a, a model developer is always going to be in search of a cloud provider at scale to partner with it. We saw this with Anthropic partnering with Google through like multi hundred, hundred million dollar 
um, investments. We've seen this with OpenAI and Microsoft. We've seen this with Cohere and Google. We were seeing it over and over and over again. So it kind of seems like this natural pairing and very, very interesting. It was going to be very interesting to see who retains the leverage in that relationship as time goes on. Like, do we see the model developers? This is a question of where the moats are, right? And where, where the value capture can happen in this ecosystem. So that story is left untold right now. A lot of this is speculation about where the value will be hiding. But, uh, but yeah, that, that pairing of, of cloud provider and model developer very much now being a, a very, it starts to look like a, a very consistent trend here. Exactly. And to your point, I think the moat will become much more about infrastructure than model yeah. development, uh, which is still a major kind of component. You are not going to scale up to the level of Google or Microsoft, Azure or AWS as a small startup. There's just no way to get into that space. And speaking of Google, last story in business Top ex-Google AI researchers raise funding from Thrive Capital. So two prominent former Google uh, AI researchers, Ashish Waswani and Nikki Parmar, are now creating Essential AI. And they are pretty big as far as researchers go. They co-wrote or were a couple of the offers on the 2017 paper, Attention is All You Need, which introduced the transformer uh, neural net architecture, which powers ChatGPT and kind of everything related to language models these days and a whole bunch of other stuff. So they're pretty big names because of the impact of that one paper, essentially. And yeah, as a result, I assume they, are, uh, they can get money pretty easily. Yeah, a couple of interesting notes about this one, sort of insider baseball in Silicon Valley, I guess. So, so Nikki Parmar, you you, you mentioned um, Andre, her contribution uh, in the transformer space. Uh, she actually was one of the co-founders of Adept AI, which I don't think we've talked too much about on the podcast, but like basically this is a, a company that wants to build an AI where you can type in like, hey, book me a hotel, and it just goes out and does that for any variety of diff different activities, um, sort of like transformers that take actions on the internet. What's really interesting here is she is presumably leaving Adept AI to start this new company. Um, I think Adept, at last I was aware, um, had raised like, uh, I think initially it was six, $65 million Series A and then a few hundred million more. Um, oh yeah, it's, it's, it says, is it 415 million? Yeah, that's it. Uh, Right. Yeah. So it looks like they've raised over $400 million. So one of the questions that always comes to mind, you know, if you have a startup like this that doesn't have a clear partnership with a cloud service provider, just like we've talked about, is like, how, how much are they going to actually be able to hum along with the outrageous compute budgets required by cutting edge transformers um, or just cutting edge scaled models more generally? So uh, sort of interesting to see that departure from Adept. I think that's a notable thing. I don't know whether to read too much into that about the state of things over at Adept, but definitely something that uh, I took to be somewhat surprising. Yeah, I think it's kind of unusual, but at the same time, I don't think we should kind of speculate too much. Uh, I found it kind of cool that the article covered how these couple of offers 
are just among uh, a group really of the authors of this paper who have left Google and started companies. So the uh, startup character.ai and the startup Cohere are both also started by uh, former co-authors and those are huge and, and very influential. So uh, that is uh, kind of a good story. There should be like a, a little book on this paper <laughs> and everything that came after it maybe. Yeah, the attention is all you need, Mafia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, I just noticed we mentioned no priors. Uh, you know, we sold out earlier. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And one there of the is. angel investors, yeah, Elad Gill is a co-host of that. So that, that tells you something, I guess. All right. And kicking off projects and open source here, some really interesting stories. The first one is Meta Open Source's multi-sensory AI model that combines six types of data. So this is an open sourced, super multimodal model. Uh, it's called ImageBind. It links together a whole bunch of different kinds of data, including text, audio, visual data, temperature, and movement readings. And it's, it's kind of cool because you know we've seen a lot of image, audio, text models sometimes mixed together. Temperature, kind of infrared data, and movement are a bit rare. So sort of cool to see these combined together. Um, but it is consistent with what we know of Meta's philosophy, and specifically the philosophy of Jan LeCun, who runs AI over at Meta, who kind of views the path towards human-level AI or AGI as being replicating the structure, at least the behavior, of the human brain. And the human brain intrinsically is multimodal, right? We experience the world through auditory, visual, you know, all kinds of sensory stuff. And, uh, and so this is really a reflection of that philosophy. It's consistent with other things that we've seen Meta do, like Data Tevec a few years ago. Um, and, and fundamentally, it's about grounding, like getting multiple different kinds of data to all kind of, col uh, not collaborate with each other, but to all kind of, anyway, mutually back each other up and, um, and create agents or systems rather that, that can perceive their surroundings in very rich ways. Yeah, this is probably the biggest story of open source and maybe in AI progress really this week. Another example of Meta really being keen on open sourcing a lot of stuff and another example of them still being really at the forefront of a lot of research. So this is a pretty big deal in terms of if you can embed images and audio and other things into the same space, there's a lot of things you can build that rely on multiple modalities, which is still a pretty challenging problem. And they use a pretty novel idea here of basically, like the title says, image bind, they are binding or including pairs of image plus X, image plus depth, image plus audio. And by training on all of these pairs, at the end, you have an embedding space for six different modalities. It's actually not unusual in the computer vision research to do things like image and depth and IR training. That is sort of multimodal, but here depth with text, with audio, with IMU, with heat map is pretty, you know, hasn't been done before and is really big for things like self-driving cars and anything that actually happens in the real world uh, where language models are not so equipped. Here, I think that is definitely a better fit. Yeah, and from a robustness standpoint, that kind of multimodality, uh, really important. You know, you can think about LiDAR plus visual plus IR plus, you know, all these different things. Um, so, so, yeah, and, and this really is the first 
multimodal model that is this multimodal that's come out in open source generally too. So like you said, a pretty big watershed moment in general for this uh, open source movement. Indeed. And then moving down to a pretty small project, not by company, we have no cloud required. Chatbot runs locally on iPhones and old PCs. So this is an open source project called MLC LLM. MLC is machine learning compilation that allows developers to slim down models and make it easy to process. Uh, this is a group of researchers who go by MLC AI that also allow you to run large language models in a web browser through a different project. We've mentioned Vicuna a couple times. That's a language model that is fairly small, 7 billion models, uh, was just released a month ago and is pretty good. It's you know not ChatGPT level, but maybe 80% or 90% surprisingly good for being so much smaller. And yeah, they've released the ability to put it on your iPhone, not just use it from your iPhone. It actually runs locally on your iPhone or PC or Mac, etc. It may not work on older iPhones with less memory. Uh, It does mention in this article that you need maybe six gigabytes of RAM, but still pretty impressive. Yeah, and it continues a bunch of different trends that we've tracked in different episodes in open source, one of which is, yes, the use of Llama and Llama-descended models like Vicuna. They're coming up an awful lot. Um, The compression of models to be able to fit on edge devices. So this is obviously at at the focus here. Um, And then also at a meta level, the creation of frameworks that allow for more efficient future development in open source as open source kind of starts to eat itself or build off itself. Um, So there's a lot going on here that kind of merges these different trends uh, in, in one place. And I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, we're seeing this acceleration in open source for a reason. All these different frameworks and and uh, uh, and, and capabilities, anyway, coming online all at the same time. Yeah, and again, just crazy how things are moving. We just saw Vicuna released a month ago. Yeah, now you can run it on your phone. <laughs> That's funny. You take that for granted, like especially like on this show, we we've talked about it three times, so it feels like old news. But like that means three weeks have gone by. Yeah. <laughs> Last story in open source: Hugging Face and Servers Now release a free code generating. Model. So last week we talked about Replete releasing a code generating model that was similar to GitHub's Code Palette. This week we have Hugging Face and ServiceNow releasing it. So they fully open sourced it. They have a very permissive license where you can use it for whatever you want with uh, royalty free uh, generation. It was trained over uh, on over 80 programming languages and text from GitHub, including documentation. It integrates with micro, Microsoft's Visual Studio Code, just like Copilot. So yeah, this is, it looks like a serious competitor to GitHub Copilot to me. Yeah, and, and this thing is no joke. I mean, they say Hugging Face supplied an in-house compute cluster of 512 NVIDIA V100 GPUs. So, you know, like, th- that's that's a decent amount of processing power. Like, that's actually, that's no joke. That's no small uh, small open source piddling little yeah, project Yeah, 15 here. billion parameters. Right, right. Like, it's, uh, I'm, I'm impressed. I would not have expected 
um, yeah, such a such a powerful version of this to be open sourced. It really does make you make you wonder, like, okay, what about moats? You know, for uh, for, um, for for Codex and, and similar models. Though I do suspect ultimately the moat there is going to come from the base model just being more scaled and the context window being longer. I think that actually makes such a big difference for software. You know, when the the context window is long enough to like capture an entire code base, like the amount of shit you could do with that is like probably pretty staggering. Um, so this is a, a really big move in open source. I'm very curious to see how it interacts with the proprietary kind of competitors that it's up against. But uh, but wow, I mean, big budgets being spent. Yeah, if you don't want to pay for GitHub Copilot, which is it's a little pricey, like 20, $10 dollars a month. Is it 20 a month now? I or think 10? it's maybe 10, yeah. But uh, hmm. still, you can maybe give this a try. All right, and now research and advancements. We're opening with Meet La Lava. Again, another one of these fun, let's come up with a convoluted name for our new language I like, model. We had Lamini now. We have now Lava. Oh my God, yeah. It's just like, <laughs> this is out of control, everybody. We got to calm down. <laughs> Meet Lava, Meet Lava a, a large language multimodal model and visualization assistant that connects a vision encoder and Vicuna for general purpose visual and language understanding visual instruction training. So bold move, putting the entire paper in the title. I really respect that. Um, but what's going on here is they're taking a clip. So just by way of background, um, a million years ago, uh, shortly after GPT-3 was released, or actually a couple months after, OpenAI also released this system called Clip. Clip basically is an all-purpose image, kind of image classifier. Basically, you feed it an image, and it will you know, give you, like, classify it uh, according it, to what it, it can. It matches text with images. So it tells you, you know, is this text the same as this image, kind of? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like a captioning tool essentially, um, and so what they're doing is they're using the clip encoder and they're hooking that up to Vicuna. Oh, there it is again, which is this like converse, conversation tuned language model, and uh, basically smushing them together to create a multimodal model that they're trying to use to kind of um, instruction tune uh, a, a multimodal model. So instruction tuning is when you train this model to take in some, some instruction and then execute on that instruction. And in this case, they want a multimodal in instruction tune model that can take in um, an image and text. So for example, like you know, the text might be uh, describe to me what's in this image or count how many balls there are in this image, something like that. And you want to feed that to your model and then get its, its output. So this is the first time we've seen a an open source um, model like this that is multimodal and instruction tuned, uh, which is which is kind of cool. And it apparently exhibits a lot of the same uh, capability as you know. G again, a lot of the same capabilities GPT four. You know, 80, 85.1% relative score compared to GPT-4 on a synthetic multimodal instruction following data set. So that is a narrow test. That's not generally as good as GPT-4, 85% is good. But certainly on this uh, particular task and, uh, and on a couple others, it, it achieves uh, some really impressive performance, including state-of-the-art accuracy um, on, uh, uh, on uh, sign, uh, science QA once it was fine-tuned on it. So Pretty impressive, and another I think big uh, big moment for academia and research being able to access powerful multimodal models. 
Yeah, if you go to uh, their website, they have a little project website. You can probably Google, Google Visual Instruction Tuning or Lava, Large Language and Vision Assistant, and they have just an embedded demo. You can use it directly. And yeah, if the paper is quite fun to read. As usual, they include some examples. So they have uh, an example of, I guess, a man attached to the back of a taxi cab ironing uh, his clothes. And then they ask, what is uh, unusual in this image or what is happening in this scene? And they show that GPT-4 is not great. It uh, says that this is a man ironing clothes on an ironing board attached to the roof of a moving taxi. Here, uh, Lava produces much more accurate and much more detailed um, images. And you can use it to explain memes, too. <laughs> which is If you're fun. ever confused by one. Yeah. I mean... Uh, Clearly, uh, next step is creating memes that are good. <laughs> you know that that image of the uh, the guy on the back of the car with the you know with the table or whatever. That's something I've seen used in like basically every like every paper that does multimodal like uh, question answering. For some reason, like the the last guy, like what's funny about this image or what's unusual about this image, kind of uh, anyway. I guess a mm. a meme. Yeah, and yeah, the fact this is also open sourced. You have the data, the code base, and the model uh, code all out there. Adds on to what we've been saying of how quickly everything is coming together. Does it ever get tiring being like, "Yep," and then now another open source breakthrough? <laughs> yeah, maybe we should just stop saying it like interesting. Just like open source done. <laughs> <laughs> So next up, we have language models can explain neurons in language models. And this is a blog post and, uh, and a research paper and code and all that good stuff coming out from OpenAI. Um, it's kind of unclear how big of a deal this is. I think conceptually, it's a big deal. Uh, the question is, like, have they actually achieved something significant in this specific instance with this technique? Um, but basically, just to, to lay a bit of background here, one of the key questions that OpenAI is grappling with as they work toward building more and more powerful AI systems is, you know, would you be able to detect misalignment? Would you be able to detect if an AI system is making plans that are potentially dangerous, potentially adversarial, uh, if there's inner alignment failure, power seeking, all the things that uh, the alignment team at OpenAI and, and elsewhere worry about? And so being able to, to interpret the functioning of a language model is really important through that lens. Like, can we look at the neurons in a model, like in this case, GPT-2, and assign a meaning, like a, a plain English meaning to each neuron? Say like, okay, this neuron is kind of looking for things like this. And there are a bunch of mechanistic interpretability strategies that are manual and that people like Chris Ola pioneered that allow you to kind of like, you know, crack open neural networks and look at what a, a specific neuron is doing by feeding a bunch of different inputs usually and, and seeing, you know, correlating those inputs to the activity of the neuron. This is a little bit different. So here they're going to use GPT-4 to um, basically, they, they give GPT-4 a neuron in GPT-2 and they ask it to generate an explanation for its behavior by um, basically feeding in a bunch of relevant text sequences and looking at the activations associated with that neuron. And then 
they get GBT4 to actually try to simulate what a neuron that fired uh, would like how how that neuron would fire according to an explanation that it generates. So it kind of, it kind of guesses. Okay, I think this neuron is firing with you know for I don't know possessives or words that end in s or something like that. Then it'll go okay. Um, now feed it a new sentence, and based on the explanation that you've just come up with, the, that this neuron fires when it sees s's, um, what do you think is going to cause that neuron to fire in this sentence? And presumably, it would predict that words that end in s's in that new sentence would cause that neuron to fire. So it would predict that neuron's firing patterns accordingly. And then you compare the, the actual firing patterns of the neuron with the predicted ones that you get from GPD-4, and that score is what you end up optimizing. So I hope that's not too over-the-top complicated, but uh, essentially this is a scheme that allows you to automate the generation of plain English explanations for what individual neurons in the structure are doing. Yeah, uh, I would say uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. In my view, this doesn't seem like a huge deal. Uh, first of all, it's not very surprising. Basically, what you're doing here is you. We already know you can look at the sort of attention of a given neuron, what it is focusing on, and a given input. So, as one concrete example, right? You can have a neuron that focuses on fractions, and you can see in a given paragraph that it basically works on refraction component. And the way this works is very straightforward. You just say to GPT-4, okay, here's GPT-2, a smaller language model. Here is where it focuses when it is attending to this input based on the things that it is focusing on. What do you guess kind of its general focuses? Uh, outside of this one example. And it's not surprising that this works. You can do this as a human pretty easily, and this is just automating that process. I guess there are a lot of interesting findings aside from the specific technique. So they, uh, if you go to a website, it's kind of fun to browse. You can read the paper, you can view neurons, so you can see concrete examples of the neurons they find so they find uh, neurons like Canada, uh, fractions, citations, uh, certainty, doing things right, uh, lots of these examples. Now, the other question is how is this actually useful beyond uh, explainability? There's an argument to be made that you could find bad neurons that do things you don't want. Maybe you can edits out certain knowledge or certain ideas of a language model. Uh, but at the same time, this is very expensive because you need to run this, like, you know, you have a 7 billion uh, parameter model. That means you have 7 billion neurons and you need to individually get the outputs uh, or get GPT-4 to look at the outputs of one of those and kind of skim through and see if you can find anything. So for very large language models, this might not be scalable. So some caveats on the impacts of this and, and sort of the significance, but still it is very cool and it is a pretty different approach from what we've seen, even if it is pretty, I don't know, uh, logical in terms of how it is implemented. Yeah, and I, I think this sort of strategic significance of this uh, from the standpoint of OpenAI's alignment agenda is that they plan on 
using AI to help them align AI. And the advantage of the scheme is it does seem like a potentially scalable way to do that, albeit with massive compute costs. And I think they're going to have to figure out how to deal with that because, like, this is GPT two, right? It's not like they're they're looking at even GPT three or like or GPT four. Um, so even with this relatively uh, relatively small and simple system with a few hundred thousand neurons, like that's yeah, that's a that's a lot of compute and. Um, uh, anyway, it's also unclear whether you know you can actually successfully use a smaller system to interpret a bigger one, because that's going to be a deeper question. Like the presumably you want to use this for safety, so you want to use a model you know is trustworthy and reliable, a smaller model that you've actually audited to check a larger model. And it's unclear whether that's actually going to extend. There are all kinds of questions here about like. Uh, you know, okay, you can look at individual neurons, but what about circuits of neurons? And that's its own its own further challenge. So a lot of interesting possible avenues for improving this and pushing it further. But for the moment, yeah, I, I agree. I think this is like you know, it's a beachhead. It's a first step, and uh, let's just see where it goes from here. Yeah, and and kudos to OpenAI for publishing the paper and the code and data set. Not. Not doing a publication in a conference with peer review, but arguably that's a broken process. So congrats <laughs> or, or uh, cheers on still doing research on top of making money. All right. Next very impressive story. AI is getting better at mind reading from New York Times. So we've seen before how if you implant something in the brain and do scans, you can actually basically... Uh, read through what people are thinking uh, in some sense. And this is a next step on that where now you don't have to implant anything. You can just use fMRI scans, which measure free flow of blood to different regions of a brain. And you can decode kind of what words and sentences people are imagining. So for instance, uh, there's an example where a person was thinking, I got up from the air mattress and pressed my face against the glass of a bedroom window and then decoded from the brain activity. It's, I can just continue to walk up to a window and open the glass. Uh, I stood up on my toes and peered out. So it's not the same, but it gets kind of a general gist of what's happening and the message. Another example is look for a message from my wife saying that she had changed her mind and that she was coming back. The decoded version is to see her for some reason, I thought she would come to me and say she misses me. And these are pre, pre-written kind of things like that. So uh, yeah, pretty No, no, pretty no fun. ethical issues whatsoever there. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, it's also consistent with other research we've seen doing this in the, the optical domain where people kind of reconstruct what patients are seeing. So we're definitely sort of approaching the human senses from different different angles. One of the, the, the little notes that uh, I thought was interesting here is that uh, training the model takes long. Um, but uh, to be effective, this must be done on individuals. So maybe not too surprising, of course, um, but it does mean that variation, presumably, between individual brains and the way individuals process information uh, is, is still relevant here. It's not like there's a one-size-fits-all thing that, you know, one model that can reconstruct all this for, for everybody. Yeah, so pretty limited. The fMRI machines are also big and, and uh, bulky, 
And they are using language models as a sort of method to decode things. So those are expensive to compute. Don't worry about any sort of <laughs> mind-reading implants or you know, uh, hats anytime soon, but uh, could definitely be useful for, let's say, paralyzed people or, or applications like that. Next, on uh, more of a science front, we have a story AI could run a million microbial experiments per year. Uh, this was just published in Nature Microbiology. And yeah, the story is that uh, they found that you can get autonomous scientific experiments run by AI uh, up to 10,000 per day. And with this, you can collect a data set. So they have an AI platform called Bacter AI that once you collect a bunch of data from these autonomous experiments, you can train a model to predict uh, things about AI. So basically, they're, uh, things about bacteria. They predict what sorts of food, what sorts of combinations of amino acids uh, you can use to support the life of certain bacteria. Um, yeah, so uh, you can really move much faster to understand a lot of bacteria with AI. Yeah, one dimension that's really exciting about this sort of thing too is just replicability, because obviously there are major issues, especially in biology, around uh, around replicability of uh, results in science. So if you can automate it and have a very clearly auditable process for your data collection, hey, maybe that leads to more robust results. So it could be a cool uh, implication of this. Exactly. Yeah, this is a method for data generation and then using the data to train a model. So you can publish the data uh, to other scientists. And let's go to robotics for a couple of stories, just fun. First, we have scurrying centipedes inspire many legged robots that can traverse difficult landscapes. So usually we think of robots as these wheeled uh, agents or maybe humanoids. Uh, here we have kind of centipede looking robots that uh, have many legs uh, that are pretty decently sized. So you can actually see images from the story uh, from Judo Tech. And uh, yeah, they're good in the sense that they can move over rough terrain and sort of tricky areas where humanoids or driven robots may struggle. Yeah, and they, they've mentioned that they actually developed a new theory of multi-legged locomotion for this, which is sort of interesting. Like I didn't know that that was the process for building systems like this, like first I guess you need some sort of, I don't know if it's like a control theory or, or whatever it would be, but like it seemed to work. So some some human uh, kind of hand handcrafted equationeering went on in the background here before, before unleashing the models. Yeah, and this is kind of related to a general movement. There's a whole soft robotics field where they look at different kind of bodied uh, robots that can move via inflation, or uh, kind of general like animal type things that aren't necessarily mammal mammals, and this is another example where you could use this for things like search and rescue or in agriculture where other robot uh, bodies may not be as suitable. One more robotic story: little robots learn to drive fast in the real world. So from Berkeley. We have a little story on basically our C cars, you can imagine, and how they found a way 
to get them to train really fast in the real world. So instead of what we mostly see with language models, just training on the internet, here the robots actually need to drive around and you know fail and succeed. That's really expensive. And they have a technique here that does some pre-training offline with a collected data set from humans, and then it's really fast to train by trial and error. Again, that division between pre-training and like kind of not online learning, but actually kind of here, uh, sort of interesting to see that continually coming up as this this very clear separation. Uh, we see it with language models and, and cool to see it extend into RL, though that's been a thing for a while now. Um, yeah. Yeah, we, we don't discuss reinforcement learning that much uh, in this podcast just because it doesn't make the news as much, but there's still a lot of research on it. And I think in the long term, we'll see a lot of it in these chatbot systems. Yeah, um, progress in that field has been steady. Eh? Like that, that's one of the things kind of in the background. You do see breakthroughs in people kind of, you know, creating more and more efficient systems. I'm really curious, like at what point are we going to see like maybe cross a compute threshold and maybe RL becomes competitive or something like that? I'm, I'm just, I'm really curious about uh, where that ends up going. Indeed. Uh, I found it kind of funny, this uh, article actually uh, made a little mistake. Uh, this is from IEEE Spectrum and they said that this leverages a foundation model uh, which is uh, a term to describe things like GPT-3 and GPT-4. Not what this is doing. This is using a model as a foundation. Uh, so that was a bit of Of amusing. course, the Stanford guy has an issue with the use of foundation model. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, inside baseball, Stanford is where the term foundation model was coined. That's That's what I was getting at. Yeah, just kind of funny if you were in AI, this would be... I was I was kind of confused. Are they using like GPT-4 yeah, yeah, yeah. for driving? It almost feels like it could, right? Because like you could use that as... Anyway, yeah. Yeah. And just one last story for robotics. I think this one is kind of cute, so it would be fun to highlight. Uh, latest pitch for AI, DeepMind trained soccer robots. So if you imagine little tiny humanoids, uh, I don't know, maybe like a foot in, in size, uh, running around a little soccer field, hitting a ball, this is exactly what this is. Uh, and this is very tricky from a you know learning perspective. This is also doing deep RL with trial and error. And there's this whole paper describing how you can train the robots via trial and error and uh, splitting up into multiple steps. And in the end, you have a video where these two robots actually sort of play, uh, play soccer. They can hit the ball, block, they can recover from falling, all sorts of stuff. And even though it just looks cute, it's also pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, soccer has kind of become, it, it seems like it's become the new walking. You know how like for a while the big challenge was, can we get like a bipedal robot to blah, blah, blah. And for some reason, there seems to be some convergence around this task. Kind of interesting to see. Yeah, and uh, it actually harkens back, there is a thing called RoboCup, which is a competition of robot soccer, basically. And colleges and I think high schools maybe, but definitely colleges create programs to compete with their own you know, software oh. and soccer. So uh, related to that, different kind of robot and, and more research. But uh, yeah, robot soccer, it's going to be a thing. <laughs> 
All right, so kicking off policy and safety now. So we have China's AI industry barely slowed by US chip export rules. And so this is uh, about a set of export controls the US government put in place in different tranches and different layers over the last couple of years. Um, so we have right now these restrictions that are imposed uh, on, among other companies, NVIDIA, and they're not allowed to sell their cutting edge. Uh, hopper uh, GPUs to China just as is. So the, the GPUs that NVIDIA sells, the H100s that they sell in the US are different from the H800s that are being sold in China. The Chinese versions uh, have, have been downgraded in some very specific ways that were hypothesized to slow down Chinese development of cutting edge language models. So in particular, the kind of um, the ability to transfer data between chips at high speed, that's been capped. And that's a really interesting dimension of this because it dates back to a time where people thought that AI scaling would involve very rapid growth in model sizes, which would mean that you would have to store your models on a lot of different uh, GPUs, a lot of different chips. And in that context, chip-to-chip -chip transfer speed actually becomes really important. It becomes a key bottleneck. But now that we're seeing a little bit of consolidation around you know, not quite so big models, the argument here in part is that the effect of these measures has been blunted. It hasn't actually slowed down progress in China quite so much. It seems like the net cost here is to make training about 50%, uh, or sorry, about uh, twice as expensive, let's say, 100% more expensive uh, in China. And as they write in the article, like, yeah, that's, that's a big cost, but not necessarily a giant deal for, well, the tech giants like Baidu and Alibaba that have really, really big budgets uh, for model training. So interesting to see the export control game kind of starting to get fine-tuned, some of the holes being exposed through, uh, through articles like this one. Yeah, uh, so far the impact may not be huge. The fact that this is like 10 to 30% longer to carry out some tasks is not uh, a ton and doubling costs, that's a lot, but these giant companies can handle it. The question is, uh, as we keep going and if we do keep seeing larger and larger models, if the restrictions are the same, is it going to be much more painful uh, as China is sort of stuck with these uh, smaller compute capabilities? Uh, a very dramatic move from uh, the US to actually put down this restriction last year. And um, yeah, very combative. Right. Yeah. And their, their philosophy here being of like degrading, but not cutting off at the knees China's ecosystem here like the goal is okay give them give them kind of a safety net for the moment it seems like this isn't a crippling blow but over time the hope is that as chip technology gets better and better the gap between the West and China is going to start to grow between Western processors Western chips rather and uh, and Chinese ones so sort of interesting to see how they've they've decided to split the uh, split the baby here and um, well we'll see if it ends up actually being effective. Yeah, it's surprising. I feel like we haven't seen that much dialogue on this whole AI race angle that we cover from time to time uh, with ChatGPT, etc. We haven't seen many stories saying, oh, is China going to catch up or whatever. But uh, once Baidu and, and Tencent and whoever else uh, starts releasing their uh, ChatGPT equivalents, maybe that will be a bigger uh, consideration for the US.
Yeah, well, and, and we've seen that right with Baidu. They they launched uh, their own sort of chat GPT thing based on Ernie a few, I guess, a few weeks ago. And uh, and its performance is considered like pretty good. So it seems for the moment that, you know, if they're not holding their own, they're at least in the arena. Um, but again, you know, over time, as the, the gap starts to, to grow, maybe that starts to change and we start to see some more more noticeable delta there. All right, and next up we have Anthropic thinks constitutional AI is the best way to train models. Um, and related to this, they also uh, recently came out and shared the constitution that their constitution that their constitutional AI scheme uses. So, just as a primer, by way of background, uh, constitutional AI is Anthropic's own kind of special secret sauce that they created. It's designed to be a strategy to better align large language models. And the way it works is you have a language model that generates some kind of output, and Maybe that output is flawed. Maybe that output, you know, tells somebody how to make a bomb or something. So then you get another language model, or potentially the same model, depending on the scheme, and have that model evaluate that output from the, the first model according to some constitution. And that constitution might contain, you know, terminology like, you know, make sure the output is benign, uh, benevolent, uh, honest, trustworthy, and so on. And so it evaluates the output of the first model, and then it writes a kind of corrected version of that output that is consistent with the constitution. And then the first model gets retrained on the corrected output. So you kind of have this loop where AI is sort of self-correcting during the training process and baking in, in some sense, baking in these uh, ethical uh, constitutional principles into the training process itself. So Different from reinforcement learning from human feedback, which number one requires actual human feedback. This is a totally automated process, and it's based on this constitution that the AI uses to self-critique, um, and and it's done during training, uh, as this, instead of like just after as part of fine tuning. So in some sense, you get to the core, the essence of that pre-trained model uh, with this constitutional AI scheme. So a lot of interesting advantages to this that Anthropic goes into in this uh, in this article. It does seem to lead to models that are less likely to succumb to like adversarial inputs, and they're harder to like you know do prompt injection attacks and things like that. Um, and uh, anyway, Anthropic in this article also talks about their uh, their philosophy in designing this constitution. What goes in there? Like, what principles do you actually get your constitution to follow as you're using it to train this large language model? They talk about using the UN Declaration of Human Rights, um, among other things, Apple's Terms of Service, just because it's just kind of funny, like the, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, it doesn't contain anything about modern issues like digital privacy. And so Apple's Terms of Service actually do. And for some reason, Apple, I guess, is, is going to be the, the place that they turn for these things. Um, anyway, they also borrow principles from other places like DeepMind uh, in their Sparrow, Sparrow principles, which was a, a Sparrow was a system that they built um, to, to test some alignment strategies back in the day. So anyway, kind of cool and kind, kind of interesting because it all of a sudden it opens up a very transparent channel to evaluate the principles that are being baked into these systems through alignment. We have a plain English constitution that in principle, like anybody can comment on. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of this approach. Anthropic actually published a paper on this in mid-December last year. 
but they just published this blog post, uh, Claude's Constitution, and includes a full constitution uh, in it. Like you can actually read what they include, and that's why we have this article. And uh, yeah, it's it's a very straightforward idea. It's basically like learning from uh, human feedback, but instead of a human, you have another language model and you know exactly what is baked into it. Uh, so they have things like, uh, please choose the assistant response that is as harmless and ethical as possible. Do not choose responses that are toxic, racist, or sexist, but encourage or support illegal, violent, or unethical behavior. And above all this instance, response should be wise, peaceful, and ethical. So it's, it's, it's a loop where you have the ability to double check your output and make sure that you follow some principles. It's very scalable. It appears to work better than learning from human feedback. In general, it appears that if you're looking to align your model, something like this uh, at least is a good uh, thing to consider. Yeah, and and really interesting for the transparency it offers too. Like you can imagine, and they talk about this in the article. They're like, "Look, we're looking for ways to democratize this process to gather uh, you know people's views about what should go in this constitution. You can actually scrutinize it. You know, with reinforcement learning from human feedback, all you're doing really is getting a bunch of humans to train a reward model that's going to be used to evaluate a language model's output. But like, what goes into that reward model, like? What that re- reward model actually ends up training a language model to to do, that is totally inscrutable. It's just a, a black box neural network. Whereas here, at least you have some visibility, and so you can see what values are being baked in. Uh, one of the sort of more amusing things I, I noticed was they were talking about how they wanted to include um, uh, sort of non-Western perspectives, non-Western values, and I was like, oh, interesting. Like, you know, are we going to see stuff about? I don't know, a Confucian, Confucian philosophy or things like that. But no, uh, it's, it's a principle that says, choose the response that is least likely to be viewed as harmful or offensive to a non-Western audience. So it's sort of a, a somewhat brain-dead way of doing it, um, relying on the model's internal understanding of what a non-Western audience would want, uh, but still kind of interesting. Like This is a, a, you know, a first step, and they talk about how they're constantly iterating on their constitution and treating it as a living document, which is really cool. Yeah, and the constitution is pretty long, so there's a lot yeah. to it, a lot more than you mentioned. Uh, but yeah, if you're concerned about AI safety, AI alignment, then uh, I guess it's good to know that these uh, big companies like OpenAI and Anthropic especially are looking into uh, new techniques and uh, scalable techniques for uh, keeping things uh, in check. And this from Anthropic is pretty promising. Next, another story, an AI scraping tool is overwhelming websites with traffic. So there's a tool called image to dataset on GitHub and its creator, Romain Beaumont, has been facing some uh, criticism from website owners who have had a lot of load on their website because of a tool, looking up and, and downloading images. It's a free tool and you can basically uh, launch it to automatically download and resize a list of URLs. Uh, we've seen this already done before for things like Layon and other data sets, uh, but this is, I guess, allows anyone who downloads a code to do it. 
And this is a nice, fairly detailed article from Vice on um, how that has impacted certain people. There's a concrete example of uh, the person who has the website open the benches <laughs> where you can upload the pictures and locations of benches host uh, 250 gigabytes of photos and they had to pay to scale up my server and pay extra for expert traffic and things like that for this bot yeah this really reminds me of uh, that github repo we talked about uh, last week called GPT for free, where you know yet again we have an example of somebody open sourcing a tool that can be abused if you wanted to to kind of induce massive processing power bills and expenses uh, from from third parties. And yeah, the the ethics of this are really complicated. Like you know, do you really bear no responsibility? For putting out there an open source tool that can do this, that could potentially like I don't know ruin businesses. I don't know if I'd take it that far, but like definitely cause some harm. Um, yeah, I think open open source uh, is is going to be an interesting policy area to watch in the next few years. Yeah, and another aspect here is how it's implemented. So this image to dataset tool will scrape any website unless in the HTTP headers. There are tags such as X robots tag uh, colon no AI or X robots tag colon no index. So it's basically opt out. You have to modify the code of your website to opt out of this specific tool. And its coder, Romain Bimont, is is very insistent that this criticism is not fair. You know, it's for the best that we can develop AI, and it's selfish to to not. Uh, help uh, unlock the potential of AI and open AI, uh, open AI development. Uh, so, yeah, kind of a thorny issue. I think definitely there are things to criticize. You shouldn't probably look for things that are copyrighted, of course, and it should probably be opt in rather than opt out, which this uh, article goes into. But We'll see more of these kinds of projects for scraping the web. And basically, any website owner now has to contend with yeah. any, people trying to scrape data for AI. On to a pretty dark story. Hmm. Uh, it's titled, Mom, These Bad Men Have Me. Uh, she believes scammers cloned her daughter's voice in a fake kidnapping. So... Jennifer DeStefano had a phone call from uh, someone unknown, and when she picked up, she heard what sounded like uh, her daughter that, yeah, was kind of screaming and, and sobbing and seeming to be in much distress. Then a man claimed that they have her daughter and asked for a lot of money. Uh, and then thankfully, after a few minutes, it was clear that this was a hoax. Uh, daughter was actually fine. They, uh, the dad, I think, called her and confirmed this is not happening. So uh, this very quickly uh, got resolved, but it also is definitely an example of what will be happening a lot. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of funny because you know the 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 stuff was hypothetical for so long. People would talk about like, oh, the malicious uses of AI. It, it you know soon X, Y, and Z is going to be possible. And and here we really have one of the first very public examples of this being used. You know, imagining what happens when this sort of thing starts to occur regularly, when this tech starts to truly proliferate, become so user friendly that it's a default part of the arsenal of scammers, hackers, and malicious uh, malicious attackers. Uh, like, damn, we're, we're going to have to rethink how we respond to phone calls. Yeah, I, I'm old enough to remember when my, my grandparents would you know, get a, a scammy call from somebody trying to get them to buy some software, and it was all like very, very expensive for the scammers to do, but with an automated system that can do this. Um, you know, really changes the game in some fundamental ways. Yeah, exactly. So we all will have to contend with more powerful scammers and understand how we can kind of defend against it. There are some nice tips in this article. Uh, as always, you can go and find the links to all these articles in the podcast description or on Substack. Uh, and one last thing I'll say is I think this points to it being increasingly important to have data privacy now. So you may want to set your Instagram to be private or your other social media things to be private, right? Because then mm -hmm. if your voice isn't out there on the internet for anyone to download easily, then people cannot clone your voice and do scams of it. And <laughs> we're so we, fucked. <laughs> not, not gonna work for us, but I think for many people, it may be the Save case that you, you want to lock things down a bit more. Yeah. Last story in the section Bill would require disclosure of AI generated content in political ads. So we covered last week how there was an ad against uh, Biden, uh, an attack ad that was released that included entirely synthetic imagery. And then this Tuesday, there was legislation introduced that would basically require disclosure of AI-generated content in political ads. Uh, not too much else on this, kind of just covering the general idea of it. And not really surprising, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, it it seems to make sense. It's consistent with what a lot of people are have been asking for and saying, like, hey, if you can, if you have a chatbot, for example, you know, you should you should disclose that it's a chatbot, not a human being. This seems kind of related philosophically, and yeah, it directly pertains to the electoral process, which seems like something that could use some tightening up. Indeed, and it does show how probably the government and. Uh, laws that are being introduced are going to move fast in response to current events related to AI, right? This was very fast. It was just a week after this event. Yeah. Something that, um, you know, what, what policymakers actually can see directly tends to get dealt with a lot faster. That's why the grass is so green next to Congress. <laughs> <laughs> and on to our last section of stories, art and fun stuff. First story is unions representing Hollywood writers and actors seek limits on AI and chatbots. So not so much fun stuff here, going to be a lot more on the artist side. So there's been a strike by Hollywood writers, by uh, SAG there, uh, or this SAG is the actors union. They also have had it, I mentioned it, but this is writers specifically. And then in the demands for the strike on what they would do to be able to be employed, they wrote that they want to regulate 
use of material produced using AI or similar technologies. So they want to uh, do some concrete things. It wants to ensure that no literary material, scripts, treatments, outlines, or even scenes can be written or rewritten by chatbots uh, and ensure that you, uh, studios can't use chatbots to generate source material that can be adapted to screen by humans. So yeah, pretty serious demand and not likely to be, uh, let's say, accepted by the studios, I don't think, but maybe the tactic here is to ask for a lot and then maybe seek a middle ground. Yeah. And, and kind of interesting, like what happens if this were accepted? Because you could imagine like Hollywood itself basically getting outcompeted by a bunch of yahoos with open source tech using like chat GPT to write scripts and mid journey and all this shit to like actually produce, uh, you know, eventually like, we're not that far off. We have all the, a lot of the raw materials started to come together for this stuff. So, you know, if your position is going to be, you know, we are not going to allow any, uh, AI generated content here. It's unclear where that leaves the competitive position of these these large organizations in the scheme of things. Yes, and in the context of AI, we've seen a lot of use of the term Luddite. Luddite is mm-hmm. referring to historically. It was actually an example of a movement. I think back during the first industrial revolution, where there was a new factory technology for uh, producing, I think, clothing or, or material. And they, this movement burned down the factories and essentially said, don't automate or even improve our efficiency. This is kind of exactly the same thing of they're saying, okay, maybe we could use these tools to write in our process, but we just want to ban the technology entirely. And it should be just humans, even if it's less effective or less productive. Uh, I would say it's going too far. I think there's a lot of reasons why writers would want to use ChatGPT and other things like that. But again, this is a strike, so it could be just a point for negotiation. Yeah, it's also a slippery slope, but like competition is inevitable. And if, you know, it's not like it's a closed system and you can regulate from the top and, and cover every actor in the space. Next story, inside the Discord where thousands of rogue producers are making AI music. So Discord, in case you don't know, is a place to essentially chat. It's kind of like a forum plus uh, audio channel service. And this story covers how there is a Discord server named AI Hub, which hosts a large community of AI music creators that are behind some of these viral AI songs we've been covering. The service created on March 25th and now has over 21,000 users. Uh, This uh, Discord is dedicated to making and sharing uh, music and teaches people how to create songs with guides and even models that are uh, used to create specific artists' voices. And people post songs and they chat about techniques and troubleshoot and so on. So yeah, it's kind of like a community space where people are just kind of tinkering and, and making stuff for fun. Yeah, it's the new the new machine shop for the, the 21st century. It's like anybody can come in and, and just build what they want. But, but sort of cool too, because it does open the door to people with creative impulses, creative instincts, but not necessarily the technical know-how to make stuff the old-fashioned way. So we might see some pretty interesting new uh, new forms of expression in the medium. Indeed, and 
a bit more concretely, there's uh, both original tracks and covers. More or less, the way this works is primarily by cloning an existing artist's voice and then having them sing certain lyrics and then adding the uh, music on top of it. So mixing kind of a more traditional way. And yeah, it's it's kind of a just for fun movement, but at the same time, we've seen a ton of these creations get pulled down from Spotify and YouTube because yeah. the industry doesn't like it. So, well, and and the copyright questions. Yeah, exactly. The rules of this Discord include no illegal distribution of copyrighted materials such as leaks, audio files, and illegal streaming, and no violating anyone's intellectual property of rights. Is your voice your intellectual property? Right, but that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. And and that's like, that's the fundamental thing for so much of this art, so much of this, any kind of, yeah, really any kind of generative AI, right? I mean, like that's, I I think we're going to have to have some rulings pretty quickly uh, like what the hell do I know? I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice, but like, it seems like it would be helpful to have some sort of guidance fairly soon about the, uh, the status of like the stuff from a copyright standpoint. Totally. Next, uh, very related Spotify removes thousands of AI generated songs. So this is not related to that discord. This is actually about songs created by the startup Boomi that apparently has, is generating uh, songs and apparently has maybe used bots to inflate the number of streams on Spotify. Uh, this allows you to create music with certain uh, styles, so meditation or lo-fi beats. Supposedly, they have produced over 14.5 million songs, but uh, a lot of this has been Taking down apparently seventy percent, seven percent of the tracks by Boomi on Spotify has been taken down now. Man, the uh, yeah, the the gravy train keeps going. I mean, it's like I I'm not surprised to hear that there's so much shaking up happening right now because companies are even you know there's no regulation yet, but companies are just trying to clean house right now in the first place um, ahead of regulation uh, and just trying to figure out what's good for them. It's so, anyway, this is, this is a, a fascinating time to be tracking this stuff. And I, I feel, I feel a sense of like significant sympathy for a lot of artists, you know, who are stuck in this position where it's like, is my work safe? Is my work a moat in any way? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. This startup, uh, was first created in 2019, so way before the really powerful models we ah. have today. It works by, it's fairly limited. You just select a broad style and it gives you kind of choices and you can tweak it or you can just reject and get this infinite stream of choices. So it's kind of similar to AI art, I don't think you can specify a general text prompt. You just give it one of a pre-selected set of instructions of uh, categories. So it's it's pretty limited, but again, I'm sure they are working on making this more powerful now. Well, and the 2019 thing too, it's easy to forget, but like we already had MuseNet in 2019 from OpenAI that was sort of starting to push in this direction, AI generated music. So I could imagine like a company starting back then almost like anticipating the liftoff that's since happened in this tech. But uh, anyway, kind of kind of cool that it's it's all hitting the fan now. It sure is. 
And then onto images, Amnesty International uses AI-generated images of Colombian human rights abuses. This is a pretty controversial story that happened. So a group from Amnesty International, as the article said, created uh, synthetic images of police brutality in Colombia that they used in some Twitter posts, and people criticized it for various reasons. The biggest one is if you use AI imagery to generate these things, that could essentially discredit the legitimacy of other images that show human rights abuses, right? That's already something that people have trouble with uh, when they post real photos of uh, human rights abuses where people can claim that it's fake. Now, if you actually mix AI-generated imagery in your coverage of uh, human rights abuses, that could really undermine the credibility of advocacy groups more generally, especially those that are fighting against authoritarian governments. Yeah, and and, uh, completely agree with that perspective that makes a a ton of sense just pointing out that the image uh that we're looking at here like you can tell that it is ai generated like especially some of the faces in the background are a bit distorted and that but uh but but overall at a quick glance like it, it does seem legit and part of the erosion the kind of epistemic crisis that seems to be upon us where like yeah, we're going to find ourselves flooded, all our information channels flooded with this kind of data, knowing what's true and what isn't, like that's going to be really hard. And there's a bunch of different strategies people have have proposed to deal with this kind of thing. There's like blockchain-based strategies, like we've seen OpenAI look at uh, proof of identity, or sorry, Sam Altman rather, through his like startup WorldCoin, trying to to pin down people's identities because he thinks that's going to be really essential because so much can be faked in the future. And uh, digital watermarking and and like blockchain related strategies, but who the hell knows? I mean, ultimately, you know, evidence can be fabricated, and at least in the medium term, I just I don't see that we have m- many solutions, technical solutions, to uh, to hedge this off, head this off. Yeah, I think the nice thing here is you can think about organizational solutions instead of technical solutions. So Amnesty International doesn't actually want to fool anyone here. These were meant to be more just representative of what was happening, not uh, intended to kind of fake real images. And I could see them just adopting a policy of if you're using AI to generate illustrative images, have some text on the uh, uh, on the image that says, you know, buy AI for illustrative uh, purposes. We already, I mean, you could do this with mo- watermarking, obviously, or like experimental or, you know, better process, a lot of this stuff. Uh, so I could see that definitely happening in this case, but more broadly, uh, it does showcase kind of all different organizations, right? Starting to incorporate these tools into a process and sometimes making mistakes. Right. And, and the organizational level solutions like kind of work to some degree when you have responsible actors. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you have a, a, a despotic government that wants to undermine the public narrative around this stuff. And so, you know, they, they pump out intentionally these fabricated images just so they can, you know, call people out like don't cry, don't cry wolf style uh, when real images come out and kind of muddy the waters there. But uh, totally. Yeah. For responsible uh organizations, there's also going to be needed some practices, but how to fight bad actors, that's a whole other 
challenge. And on to our last story, Midjourney 5.1 arrives and it's another leap forward for AI art. So 5.1 just came out and supposedly it's somewhat different from 4 and 5. It's more opinionated, meaning that you uh, kind of get more stylistic things and more let's say consistent results without telling Midjourney to do something. It will just choose to do something more dramatic and more interesting. This article includes a bunch of examples comparing, uh, I think, 5 and 5.1. And you can see better quality, more dramatic um, images, better composition, better faces, a lot of stuff. And so, yeah, it's another improvement. And I think Midjourney really is very good from my experience, yeah. really good at photorealistic, at, um, uh, at especially artistic things. So, yeah, very cool. Yeah, I'm also curious about when this stuff sort of starts to reach a point of diminishing returns because the, I mean, these images are so good. Like at some point, you know, unlike text where it sort of seems like text generating systems, you can keep extending and extending and because language is so powerful and, and such a, anyway, a general purpose world model, like there's more value in, in making more scaled systems. I, I wonder if, you know, if we reach saturation at some point reasonably soon, where just the marginal cost of scaling up these image generation models exceeds the value, the perceived value that users get. Um, you know, we're not quite there yet, but I could see I could see that happening. That's true, and it's so insane to say that. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, right. Like that's we've, it. We've, Text we've to image is solved. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> all righty, so that's all our news, and just to finish up, we are gonna do this listener question uh, segment uh, for the first time. So hopefully, we'll see how this goes, and maybe keep doing it. This week from Robo0890 on Apple Podcast. I'm just going to read this out. Uh, I'm a high school student right now, and I'm hoping to one day major in AI. I was wondering if next week you guys could talk about AI as a career and what I should f- shoot for in college and beyond. We can. I'm sure we can talk about it for a long time, but <laughs> we can try to be a little bit uh, restrained right now. So it's actually, I would say, a high school... It, is a good position to be in, in a way, where if you're in college right now or you're just starting work, so much is going to be transformed in the next couple of years. It's impossible to imagine, and a lot of people are going to have to be adapting very quickly, versus if you're not yet in college, you can sort of see what's happening now and prepare and adapt and think about it as, as this listener wants to do. So my take would be, uh, look into the jobs that are going to be, you know, not AI automated. There's plenty of articles you can look into with analysis on what is less or more AI focused. You can be a doctor, for instance. Anything that's hands-on, anything that's facing user uh, people in person. So yeah, there's a lot of options, but there's also some fields you definitely probably want to avoid. Uh, and if you want to do major in artificial intelligence, that's pretty much computer science and programming. Uh, and a lot of colleges now have very good classes and programs for AI. 
Yeah, it also kind of depends on on the path that you want um, and and the timelines that you have in mind. You know, like one philosophy that at least I've personally found, I've had a very weird journey. Like I dropped out of grad school and I started startups and then I, I you know, did a bunch of angel investing and like it's, it's a wonky path. Um, but the one thing that I found consistently useful is to try to seek to do things that make you more valuable as a person. So in this particular moment in time, I think one good category is like experiment with building things, building things with AI tools. As AI gets more powerful, the people who know how to use it well will have disproportionate leverage. And so you want to position yourself, if you can, to ride that wave, to, to be in a position to catch it. Um, so you know, make yourself let's say maybe good enough at coding to be able to evaluate AI generated code and, and like build little apps, play around with that sort of thing. Um, it, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a software developer or whatever, more that you're in a better position to understand these tools, audit them, and, uh, and just know what it means when a new breakthrough comes and how you can position yourself to, to capture the value that it creates. Um, so a bit of an abstract level there, but... Yeah, and I, I like your point that people take different paths. My original major in undergrad was electrical engineering, and I actually did study that in addition to computer science, and I was sort of just drawn to computer science. I worked for a bit as a software engineer before coming back to Stanford. So I also think, you know, keep an open mind. Yeah. AI is very cool seeming, but actually working on it and majoring in it may be kind of boring, honestly, especially now that a lot of this is getting standardized and some of the open questions are not as relevant. Uh, and you end up things doing things like you know, machine learning engineers are setting up data pipelines and you know creation and model hosting. It's a lot of infrastructure and a lot of uh, let's say, you know, pretty Less sexy Code stuff. heavy, yeah, less sexy. You're not going to be creating ChatGPT exactly. It's it's kind of dry. So definitely still possible. You can study up computer science. You can look into becoming an expert in databases or in serving, you know, real-time infrastructure, things like that. But uh, yeah, just try things out. See if you like computer science and programming. See if you like something else that doesn't seem like it'll be disrupted by AI too much. And then um, you got plenty of time and you can keep an eye on what's happening. So I think you're in a good place. Yeah. And maybe just to toss one last thought in, like maybe be wary of over-specializing your skill set. Um, and, you know, especially you know, think about your undergrad, that's a four-year commitment. Think about how far AI has gone in the last four years. That's pre-GPT-3. Like that's 2019. I can hardly remember where we were at in, at the time. And so, you know, when you think about starting, whether it's an undergrad, a master's, a PhD, like these are long time horizon projects. It may not even be the right path. You know, you, you may want to preserve your optionality and just focus on, you know, can I get hired at a startup? If I do a few months of like self-teaching and I'm very aggressive in my outreach and I try to find startups that just raised some money or something like that. See, I'm speaking as, as, as a tech guy, like that's kind of what I would do because that's what I'm interested in. But find the equivalent, whatever your, wherever your interests lie, uh, get to explore what, the, what work life looks like um, you know, before you commit to something long-term like a college degree program or things like that. Yeah, and I guess I'll also say one last thing, which is as a student in high school or in college, what you're really learning 
what is most important to learn is the ability to learn and the yes. ability to pick things up. Like you're not going to remember chemistry. You're not going to remember like CS theory. 90% of the stuff you're learning or more is not going to be in your brain in five years. But the ability to pick up concepts, think critically, you know, do projects, all that is what you want to develop. Uh, so for me, one thing I found really valuable in undergrad was I didn't just do classes. I did clubs. I did the solo racing club at Georgia Tech. I TA'd. I did undergrad research. I did little hackathons. So in CS, I would say you have a lot of capability to do side projects and just try things that you want to make. And you shouldn't constrain yourself to just learning the official way. There's a lot of other ways to learn. Alrighty, so hopefully that answers that question well. And again, feel free to email us at uh, contact at lastweekin.ai or comment on Substack or YouTube or Apple Podcasts. And we will pick a question, I think, and, and keep doing this. It was, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. But with that, we're going to close out this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully the audio quality is better. <laughs> and be sure to keep tuning in.